the individual investor is professionalizing at the end of one of the biggest, most Homeric blowout parties of all time. Forgive the cliched baseball metaphor, but this is like a player being called up from the minor leagues right before the offseason after a seven-game dramatic World Series finale. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else. You know, we have got an incredible piece today. We are going to have to do this in two parts because this is a huge article, um, but it is amazing. And it's, it's got so many different facets of breaking down what's happening in our situation in, in the world today, but really also just in the US, what's happening with the move into why are the equity markets just constantly blowing up? What is asset inflation? Why, how are we treating this? What's happening to the generational shifts? It, it pulls so many different topics into one and then lays them over top of the, this shift that we are seeing with Bitcoin and what it means in the context of our world today. The overarching centralization of the 20th century authoritarian institutions on the backdrop of Bitcoin and autonomous decentralization growing up from underneath. This is a really, really great one. It's called Revenge of the Nodes. You're not going to want to miss this one. So uh, stick around. Uh, really quick, I just want to thank our sponsors. And we have got three amazing sponsors right now. We got the Fold Card and Fold app. I rave about these guys because I use Fold incessantly. Uh, get sats, rewards on literally everything that I buy, up to 100% with the debit card. And sats back on gift cards in the app to tons of other major merchants. Um, and these are real sats that you can withdraw to your Bitbox hardware wallet. Hold your keys, hold your Bitcoin securely in cold storage. Get an open source hardware wallet that's easy to use. The Bitbox is what you are looking for. And then for your automatic savings, the stack that never stops stacking and automatically goes to your cold storage, your BitBox, Swan Bitcoin. I shill all these guys because I use all these products literally constantly. You can check them all out at guyswan.com at the top of the page. There's some discount codes and other goodies. Again, that's guyswan.com. All right. With that, let's get into today's or into the first part of today's incredible read. And it's titled, The Revenge of the Nodes. When 20th Century Authority Gives Way to 21st Century Autonomy by Aaron Siegel. The global economy is driving toward authoritarianism, but Bitcoin offers autonomous decentralization that can save the average investor. Part 1. Bitcoin as a Tree, Persistence and Deep Structures, a Reverie 
Perhaps if I had been more brazen, the title to part one of this series would have ended up as something more tantalizing. Something punchy like, Bitcoin is a palm tree and fiat is a coconut. But for better or worse, such a title felt saturated with a bit too much levity, too tropical and trivial for such a weighty topic. In truth, though, the palm tree imagery would have actually been a very accurate allegory of how the Bitcoin and fiat roadmap will evolve as we progress further into the 21st century. A royal palm, Roystonia oleracea, bobbing feverishly in a torrential squall, though never ceasing to retain a firm grasp to its roots deep under the soil. And as with any storm, the only Darwinian necessity for this tree is one of survival, to ride out the tempest as unscathed as possible. Other trees and structures may shatter and snap in capitulation to the harsh vagaries of nature, leaving more sunlight for our royal palm to absorb once the sky has cleared. The debris from all that had not been robust enough to survive the attack, metabolized by colonies of termites and brush fires, transformed into lush and fertile soil. A new base layer from which to rebuild and thrive. An apt metaphor in light of the fact that soil happens to be the only physical medium ever observed in nature capable of transforming death into life. Likewise, an absolutely scarce, incorruptible sound money is the only economic medium capable of breathing economic life into a decaying and debased financial system. A warning. Harmlessly passing your time in the grassland away, only dimly aware of a certain unease in the air. You better watch out, there may be dogs about. I've looked over Jordan and I have seen things are not what they seem. What do you get for pretending the danger's not real? Meek and obedient you follow the leader, down well-trodden corridors into the valley of steel. What a surprise, a look of terminal shock in your eyes. Now things are really what they seem. No, this is no bad dream. Roger Waters, Sheep, 1977 A Prophecy Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete? Proving nature's laws wrong, it learned to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete, when no one else even cared. Tupac Shakur, The Rose That Grew From Concrete before we can fully appreciate the persistency characteristic of Bitcoin inferenced above, it is perhaps helpful to contextualize how and why such anti-fragility, something we will define in greater detail further below, will inevitably reveal itself like a crack of thunder, a slap in the face, allowing us all to witness its deeply undervalued utility. To accomplish this, let us take a slight detour using a modified version of the Socratic questioning technique. A theory. The stampede of the mass investor class. Esteemed polymath tech investor Balaji Srinivasan, in his conceptual model of a decentralized pseudonymous economy, controversially has declared, quote, In the 1800s, everybody was a farmer. In the 1900s, everybody was in manufacturing. In the 2000s, everybody becomes an investor. 
And one of the things that people don't understand until they're an investor is the idea that money is abundant. Balaji Srinivasan, Invest Like the Best podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. A discussion. Let us take the above statement at face value and accept it for the moment as an evolving a priori reality. I think most of us would agree that such a broadening in reach of the investor class is indeed undergoing rapidly escalating momentum, particularly accelerating in the post-pandemic world. It is hard to deny the hard evidence discussed below, as well as the observed cultural spotlight that has emphasized self-directed stock market investing. The evidence is everywhere, even scrolling across my newsfeed as I wrote this essay, quote, Robinhood working on feature to let users invest spare change. Investing spare change has become an increasingly popular strategy for new stock traders and is a key piece of competing apps such as Acorns, Chime, and Wealthsimple. Bloomberg With Robinhood's symbolic IPO now etched into our recent memory, headlines as stated above are perfect examples for our discussion. Micro-funded stock market investing would epitomize this evolution towards a mass investor class. I, for one, see this change all around me, in my professional life in the hedge fund industry, in a culture of growing FOMO, greed, and anxiety, all the way to my personal interactions with friends and family and on social media. I even believe this is what many policymakers and technocrats are consciously aspiring to incentivize. And it disturbs me. What are the implications of such a societal transformation? And what are its root causes? Such open-ended questions arising from this observation are one reason why I am so attracted and intrigued by Srinivasan's conjecture in the first place. His statement opens the door to a variety of discussions and touches on some very important themes. Some of these themes pertaining to the inevitability of a decentralized economy are topics that will be discussed in greater detail in part two of this series. In the meantime, let us set the stage by understanding why a mass investor class is being encouraged, how it will lead to even more centralization, and how all of these opened doors are one-way escalators, guaranteed to lead to further path-dependent decision trees and eventually generate near-infinite instability and systemic fragility. And what will become overwhelmingly clear will be the holistic interplay between the inevitability and unsustainability of this path on one side of the coin and then Bitcoin's persistence on the other side, patiently waiting for its turn to be hoisted into the air, spinning frenetically, though calm and collected, as it patiently anticipates a face-up landing. A Sandwich Metaphor What Srinivasan's prophecy unknowingly exposes is the reality of a dangerous transitional period in which the global economy currently finds itself. We are situated in a confused state of limbo right now, sandwiched precariously between decentralization and centralization. The cultural energy of this fluid temporal state certainly solicits a certain, quote, 
unease in the air, though the growing discontent is palpable. And just as the events of the COVID-19 pandemic have propelled the intensification of many trends, one of these trends is indeed a manifestation of a, quote, proletariat and aggressively expanding investor class. And while such a progression has many positive attributes, ranging from self-empowerment, the opportunity for new wealth creation in the short run, and financial education about markets, risk management, money, and economic theory. All such benefits are sadly misguided and short-sighted. In the end, these very tangible benefits are destined to be diluted and vanquished by ominous forces. The main reasons as to why a commoditization of the investor class is such a dangerous evolution can be primarily attributed to timing, historical context, and the implications of what this mass investor society will require in the form of second and third derivative effects. Please be patient below, for this first section is unavoidably heavy with some financial data and terminology. However, such data is imperative to help us understand the bigger picture of what is going on, and will pay dividends further into the article and series as we expand on the bigger ideas of our thesis. I am not a doomsayer. I do not live in a bunker. I have seen too many investors fall victim to overly bearish narratives, missing out on great asset inflations that such negativity obfuscated. The purpose of this essay, however, is not to lay out some near-term investment thesis. That said, what I have begun to witness with increasing clarity as an investor as a member of our society who cares about the world my children inherit, is growing evidence of an unavoidable trap. A trap with only one realistic solution. So the financial data herein is merely a tool, a language to help us see this insight. In fact, the main message of this series is much less about finance and markets, and much more about human nature, history, and the impact that incentives and ideological conflict will have on the outcome of the bulk of this century. So, bear with me as I take us further down this rabbit hole of faded blocks in our chain of reactions. Block 1. Historical context matters. It turns out that timing is everything. A mass investor class driven by false premise and perverse incentives, is ironically forming after a period of unparalleled historic asset inflation. We have just witnessed an unprecedented 40 years plus of financial asset inflation, debt accumulation, deregulation, and monetary opulence. An epic bond bull market where the risk-free rate has gone from 16% to nearly zero. The stock market relative to our productive capacity is at record. Almost all valuation metrics are at historical highs, and irrational behavior has expanded dramatically. Exemplified by SPACs, R-slash-Wall Street bets, meme stocks, retail margin debt, and of course, many pockets of the quote, crypto universe. At the same time, Government and corporate leverage are also both at extremes, 
These statistics become even more excessive once accounting for off-balance sheet government liabilities, such as Social Security, Medicare, pension obligations, and off-balance sheet defense budgets. This is in addition to factoring in rosy corporate guidance assumptions and lots of company management teams getting desperately creative with earnings addbacks tricks and aggressive accounting engineering strategies. Said differently, the individual investor is professionalizing at the end of one of the biggest, most Homeric blowout parties of all time. Forgive the cliched baseball metaphor, but this is like a player being called up from the minor leagues right before the offseason after a seven-game dramatic World Series finale. Is this really a good development for society? This is actually rather typical of the behavior observed and participation that occurs in peak periods of bull markets. However, there are a few key differences here relative to the typical bubble burst. First, we are referring to such behavior in the context of these investments being made under the guise of newfound professionalism and empowered career shifts. There is a sense of entitlement to riches and an expectation from both policymakers and new investors alike that it is their right to attain wealth from capital markets and to do so with very little embedded risks. Further, as evidenced by a declining labor participation rate, a society of investors creates double risk. As more people forego other modes of labor, we become a society of renters rather than doers. We reverse the arrow of history that has always led to increased specialization and division of labor. So not only are more individuals now exposed to financial assets than ever before, but this expanding cohort has done so at the opportunity cost of foregone employment and earned wages elsewhere. The stakes are higher and the margin for error lower. And such behavior is actually being endorsed both culturally as a means of revolting against the wealthy class and politically as a liberal entitlement for asset ownership to see greater distribution without any regard to the underlying value and risk of such assets. This is different from a simple transitory financial bubble. This is a hot air balloon floating up through the stratosphere never to feel the Earth's firm embrace again. A chart of the U.S. stock market capitalization relative to GDP in nominal dollars from 1971 to present, showing a near vertical move far past the all-time high in the past three years, with an arrow pointed at today when it is higher than it has ever been, and the notation, Dear Mass Investor Class, you are here. Mass investor class adoption is accelerating. The annualized rate of equity inflows thus far for 2021 are about $1 trillion. For some perspective, this is greater than the total cumulative inflow into equities over the entirety of the last 20 years. The above chart illustrates $1 trillion of annualized inflow into stocks in 2021 
compared to 800 billion cumulative equity inflows from 2001 to 2020. Let that sink in for a minute before continuing this essay. We see so many insane and unprecedented charts, memes, and statistics these days that it is easy to gloss over this graph, but this really says something profoundly troubling about where things are headed. Margin debt for leveraged equity trading, tracked by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, has historically been a signpost of individual, or retail, investor excitement and greed within the equity markets. The below chart plots the annual percentage rate of increase in margin debt, which historically has anticipated recessions, marked by the purple-shaded regions. However, we can see in the recent period, margin has spiked at historically unparalleled pace, perhaps peaking in the near term. But the key observation here is that this rapid rise has occurred after the purple bar, rather than before it. Margin debt did not precede a crisis, but was the response to it. We saw hints of this in 2009, but that was after a massive purging of bank and housing leverage and a large write-down of asset values. The COVID-19 crisis did not allow for such a purge and instituted policies to reinvigorate retail equity investment dramatically. This is new behavior. Bank of America wealth management clients' equity allocation are at all-time highs. And then we have household net worth as a percentage of disposable personal income, the purple, versus the ratio of personal savings year-over-year -year growth rate to the net worth year-over-year -year growth rate in the white line on this chart, showing the greatest divergence since 2004 when the chart begins. What this last chart directly above demonstrates is that individuals in the U.S. are no longer building savings from excess income, but from asset inflation. Definitionally risky and inflation-sensitive financial assets are now the primary stores of value for most households that can afford to own them. For a greater historical context, below is the same household net worth as a percentage of disposable personal income going back to 1945. This chart shows minor fluctuations for about 50 years from 1945 up to the late 90s, with an average ratio of 98%, just under 1 to 1, while it surges in the post-financialization era from 2000 to today, with an average of 120% and currently at 150%, the highest point in the entire time period. The Death of Creative Destruction Okay, let's pause right here and thank our sponsor. So why get a BitBox hardware wallet? Or why get any hardware wallet for that matter? Not your keys, not your coins. This one is simple. If you aren't holding your own Bitcoin keys, you do not own them. If they're in your Robinhood account or your Cash App balance, or you've got them in BlockFi trying to earn a few percent on your savings, you aren't holding your keys. If they get hacked or there is some catastrophic bug in their systems, 
you will not get your Bitcoin back. If they freeze your account, you cannot get your Bitcoin. They hold the keys. When you have a hardware wallet like the Bitbox O2, you are holding your keys. You're using an open source device so that you can know their code is transparent. It is built by Bitcoin engineers and the device is easy to use and set up, which makes it great for those who have not yet taken the dive to hold their own keys. Learning how to do that securely is one of the most important things that you can do in Bitcoin. And getting your Bitbox O2 is the best way to start. Go to guyswan.com bitbox and use code GUY for 5% off everything in their store. Again, that is guyswan.com bitbox. All right, let's jump back in. The Death of Creative Destruction Below is a graph of an indicator known as Tobin's Quotient, also known as the Q ratio. In essence, it is the ratio of the stock market's current capitalization divided by the real-world replacement cost of the assets associated with that equity. As visualized in the below chart, this ratio is at historically unprecedented levels. The chart ranges from post-World War II to present, and expresses that equity valuations are currently nearly two and a half times their replacement value. This compares to a 75-year average ratio closer to the replacement value. Admittedly, this analysis is not free of nuance, as our economy has shifted into an information age characterized more by digital economies, whereby assets become more intangible, and therefore it becomes harder to value replacement costs such as intellectual property and the goodwill of network effects. But even if we account for this change, the current Q ratio still stands at over three times the replacement value, compared to the 1990s pre-dot-com bust era of a 1.4 times replacement value average, and post-dot-com bust era average of closer to 2.3 times the replacement value. No matter how you slice the data, what this demonstrates is the sheer extent of companies financially valued in a manner completely dislocated from their economic reality. So-called zombie companies that should not exist in a truly free market, often carrying high quantities of unproductive debt to sustain themselves, thrive in such a brave new world. These entities trap good money and keep it petrified within decaying structures. As a professional investor who spends a great deal of time investing in high-yield corporate credit, I see this insanity on a daily basis. At some point, the only way to reconcile such imbalances is either by way of mass restructurings, bankruptcies, and debt defaults, or through inflation. Inflation acts to boost the denominator of replacement value in an alchemist's potion of superficial rectitude. Inflation, as witnessed throughout human history, is by far the more palatable solution for economists, Wall Street investors, and of course, politicians who have two to four year outlooks on the world. But the irony of this fact is that such a realization is to also explain how we got here in the first place. The Denial of Quality 
Below, we can observe more evidence of declining quality. In this instance, we are not referring just to the collapse of creative destruction and balance sheet quality, but to the quality of overall corporate earnings themselves. The very metrics we trust to help us ascertain the complex world of data around us have been gamed and manipulated to a point where the measure has become the target. GAP, or Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, is an accounting protocol designed to limit the debasement of earnings through opaque, arbitrary, and misleading addbacks. Sometimes there are indeed valid non-GAAP adjustments that need to be made to get an accurate picture of a company's true run rate earnings potential. On the whole, however, such non-GAAP adjustments to GAAP reporting has tended to produce a picture of lower integrity and confidence. Despite this, we have become so accustomed to such adjustments that market participants and regulators have accepted the gradual deviation unblinkingly. It is perhaps not surprising that non-GAAP adjustments first became, quote, rooted into the fabric of financial reporting in 1988, when many policies of financialization of the economy accelerated. It is also worth mentioning that most stock-based compensation expense is added back to non-GAAP earnings. So there is a self-referential dynamic at play here, as non-GAAP earnings boost the appearance of profits, helping to inflate stock valuations, which in turn inflate the very stock-based compensation that is helping inflate the earnings in the first place. The below chart plots the spread of non-GAAP earnings minus GAAP earnings. This spread tends to spike in recessions as non-operating losses accrue. But interestingly, in years beyond the recession, the trend resumes its path toward weaker quality. Block 2. A Hot Air Balloon the result of this situation is that system fragility balloons rapidly, necessitating a deterministic path dependency of increased data manipulation, government support, regulation, and free market intervention. Such a historical valuation and asset performance context as articulated above means that broadening financial asset exposure to a more diverse and larger population creates unacceptable systemic risk for the economy over the long run. To borrow a game theory phrase, the stock market becomes a single point of failure. As I've laid out in a previous article, Thinking Too Small and the Pitfalls of the Inflation Narrative, it also becomes a means of insidious money printing via financial asset creation, rather than by the more obvious money supply expansion of our parents' and grandparents' generations. This incentive to inflate by decree of moral hazard, or implicitly guaranteed financial asset inflation, is even easier to accomplish when technology is making more and more products and services cheaper or outright costless, and when supply constraints like we are experiencing now make the consumption of physical stuff less desirable or even impossible in some cases. Properly priced debt markets create return hurdles to investment 
that incentivize only those endeavors that can create new productive capital. Overly cheap debt incentivizes leveraging of the existing capital stock without a need or desire for any productive gains. And even when new capital investments are eventually made, the clear incentive is to do so with that cheap financing rather than from savings and cash flow. This eventually leads even productive capital allocators down paths of excessive leverage. Meanwhile, as assets inflate, the only way to maintain the desired standard of living involves moving any savings instead into riskier financial assets like stocks, bonds, and real estate. This is because the return on investment for new capital formation always takes longer to play out relative to reharvesting the existing capital stock when inflation is all but assured by systemic moral hazard. Add to this the fact that oppressed and manipulated interest rates are pilfering from the very future for which new capital would be invested, discussed more below. This further disincentivizes any material investment in new capital stock. The below chart plots a ratio of total U.S. capital expenditures in nominal dollars divided by the denominator of base money put into the system, measured by M2 money supply. Ever since peaking into the dot-com crisis, investment in new capital formation has plummeted relative to new money creation. This begs the rhetorical question as to where all of the excess new money is flowing if not to new capital formation? The answer is financial assets, of course. Thus, the incentives are as clear as a stiff slug of stoli. And for most of the past 30 years, only the wealthy have been part of this game design, gaining a seat at the table with their existing assets, their, quote, proof of stake. However, it is becoming more evident that ubiquitous moral hazard, further time preference shrinkage, and freshly minted savings are the most efficient next stage in this decision tree of false free will. Policymakers on both sides of the aisle have incentives to embrace such a narrative. They will aim to drive middle class net worth, as opposed to the old playbook relating to the improvement of middle class income, education, social safety nets, and tax redistribution. Meanwhile, the right side will gladly pass their baton from trickle-down supply-side monetarist economics with its self-deluded hopium that the American corporatocracy will share the wealth and likewise embrace financial inflation and socialized capitalism. The right will perceive such centralization of capital markets as distasteful, but better than an alternative of Keynesian socialism and redistribution. Both sides will trade their core principles for a solution that actually delivers results, albeit at a tremendous cost. If you were a policymaker looking at the below chart, what would be the least risky and most obvious mechanism to rectify such immense divergence? Easy. Simply tie, quote, typical worker pay to the S&P 500, and boom, mission accomplished. The chart compares three different statistics, the pay for CEOs, the S&P 500, and the typical worker pay, showing the incredible growth in the S&P 500, the staggering growth in the CEO pay, 
while the typical worker pay percentage increase has been so low that it basically appears flat on this chart. Okay, so let us assume we've now got the ball rolling and are indeed starting to tie worker compensation to the stock market through various means. But how is such a feat accomplished? It's not as though the government can force employers to pay wages in the form of stock market indices. Well, not directly. The answer lies in a blended recipe of altered incentives. Moral hazard and implicit backstop of equity prices as described above is certainly the epicenter of such a strategy. But there are endless others. Fiscally induced higher individual savings with incentives to invest any excess savings. Deglobalization efforts that encourage U.S. citizens to invest and save more domestically rather than consumer imports from China and the natural progression of technology and financial innovation simply doing their thing, creating greater on-ramps for democratized investing. Examples of this would be products such as exchange-traded funds, ETFs, trading platforms like Robinhood that simplify the user experience, social media-powered blogs, YouTube channels, and alternative infotainment platforms that build confidence and then sprinkle this broth with a hefty dose of FOMO at the cultural level. Another obvious mechanism would be through higher income taxes to divert money toward financial investment and greater capital gains taxes to incentivize stock market holding behavior. These are just examples. The point here is that there is a limitless toolbox available to further such goals, both intentionally as well as organically, by way of the system's natural incentives. But wait, you say. What is wrong with a higher savings rate and less consumption? After all, is this not a core principle of many Bitcoiners? The problem is that even prior to such a societal career shift as we are witnessing today, the level of asset prices relative to their fundamental value had already crossed a point of no return, creating a frustrating sense of fatalism for many open-eyed market participants. Decades of declining discount rates have stolen so much value from the future already that there are no future growth seedlings left to even take root. So the problem here is not saving in and of itself, but the specific savings pastures into which individuals are being herded. Saving is not saving if it is not being funneled into real stores of value. Just the opposite, in fact. The only way to maintain current standards of living requires perpetual asset price rates of growth, which in turn necessitate more and more debt. If the government and normative cultural influences were to export such a dynamic to the masses, what should we expect the outcome to be? Is it utopian equality and abundance? Or is it central planning? a marginalized free market, and socialized economic activity. You guessed it. Door number two, Bob. Block three. Math. One of the most influential variables that historically has been associated with the end of periods of great stability and strength has been wealth inequality. While such skewness is rarely the origin of a systemic collapse, it is almost always a symptom of the decay, 
and just as often plays a role in catalyzing the tipping point into decline. From the Mayans, to the Roman Empire, to the Chinese Three Kingdoms, to the Ottomans, to the French, Russian, and Chinese revolutions, wealth inequality has always played a major role. This is a big problem for the mass investor class strategy. This is because a goal of wealth redistribution with a strategy centered around asset inflation is statistically impossible to achieve. Many proponents of this new investor class take the fight fire with fire approach. Yes, asset inflation, driven by modern monetary policy, has been the prevailing impulse of inequality over the last several decades. Why should the average individual not be able to get their just desserts as well? Ethically speaking, I take no issue with such retribution to some degree. Unfortunately, it's an illusion. The presiding growth curve that has been empirically witnessed as it pertains to wealth distribution has been found in the Pareto Principle, a probability distribution whereby a small percentage of the sample group acquires most of the attainable value. Facets of this law, more colloquially known as the 80-20 rule, are observed not just in wealth distribution, but prolifically throughout much of nature and human social environments. We have experienced at least a half-century of Kantian effects that have supported asset owners in exponentially outperforming relative to income owners. Even if we disposed entirely of such Kantian effects, and allowed the broader population equal access to financial assets going forward, and even if financial assets continue to generate historically anomalous returns, the 80 percenters would never catch up. The reason for this is simply due to the nature of exponential growth curves, as seen in the Pareto Principle. Inequality would be maintained at the very least, if not continue its asymptotic expansion. Pareto's Law – How Asset Inflation Becomes a Highly Entropic State for Wealth Distribution, Regardless of Policy This Pareto probability distribution is exemplified quite dramatically after looking at 2020 as an outlier year, whereby the least wealthy percentiles actually saw the largest percentage improvement in wealth. However, while this is a lovely-sounding statistic for social media hype and political propaganda, it is purely a mathematical outlier caused by starting from such a low base and from such a low level of prior financial asset ownership. Unfortunately, the banner year for the bottom 50%, purple bar below, did next to nothing to narrow the gap from the top percentiles, as evidenced by the below chart. 2020 did nothing to rectify the problems of inequality. In fact, inequality only got worse. Why would a continuation of asset inflation look any different in the future? If inequality cannot be corrected by the only policy tools available, the risks for social instability will only rise further. Ironically, when stability is threatened, this tends to only increase levels of centralization. Have you ever been driving your car on a wet, slippery road, only to fishtail unexpectedly? While our instinctual response would be to tense up and violently steer the wheel in the opposite direction to regain control, 
such a reaction would only worsen our dire predicament. One must steer into the chaos. Once control has gone, such a fate must be embraced, not opposed. This is the only way out. Further attempts at control only make matters worse. Block 4. All roads lead to one road. More centralization. Once the inevitability of blocks 1, 2, and 3, as stated above, are appreciated, the path dependency of block 4 in our chain becomes absurdly apparent. Subsidizing asset prices through monetary debasement becomes the oblique way that society yields to ideologies like universal basic income. Universal basic income, or UBI, may end up in the very long run as explicit social welfare programs, or helicopter money. Of course, during COVID-19, we saw some discrete examples of this, turning something merely theoretical into a tangible part of the societal zeitgeist. However, it is a mistake to assume a linear path. That such policy will now settle as the initial and most effective vector for such policy going forward. A more frictionless pathway would be the mechanism outlined above, whereby social welfare can be extolled circuitously. The brilliance of such a policy approach is that it would not require any incremental pieces of legislation and no constitutional alterations to property rights. There are no foundational legal constraints. This implies that our current institutions have the power to accomplish such social welfare goals today. One could argue that some changes would certainly make these aims easier to administer, like augmenting the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 and expanding the powers of the U.S. Treasury Department. However, the key point here is that such change is not required. If the reader finds this too far-fetched, I would recommend listening to the taped conversations between ex-President Richard Nixon and then-Federal Reserve Chairman Arthur Burns. It has happened before in this country and in less dire circumstances. UBI advocates are here, and they have their own network effects. American openness towards socialism and a commensurate disdain for capitalist ideals has increased dramatically over the last four generations. This has been well documented with recent generations, particularly millennials, but it is important to recall that such a trend has been consistent well before that even with the boomer generation relative to their parents and grandparents. This is rather alarming when one considers that this generation has been the biggest beneficiary of financial asset prices, coincident with the full embrace of the fiat monetary system, of any generation in American history. A quick pacifist detour. Passive investing socializes capitalism. Okay, let's take another pause to keep the lights on and let's spin for some sats. And I'm actually doing this right now. I forgot to do my daily spin. All right, we have got gift card match for the week. Okay, what is that? Crap, uh, holy crap, that's probably a lot. That's probably like three or 400 sats. Bought like four or five Uber gift cards for the, the conference in Miami. Uh, I know I uh, bought a $200 Amazon one not too long ago, which I got 5% off or 5% back just for doing that because I got the fold card. And then I got these sats completely for free. 
Literally, if you just get the app, you get to spend every single day for free sats. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to get the card. You just spin. But you can also get sats back by buying gift cards to a bunch of major retailers. And if you have the Spin Plus debit card, you get sats back on everything. On my hotel for Miami, I got 2.5% sats back. That is correct. Fold gave me 60-some thousand sats just for buying my hotel room, which I had to do either way. So are you going to buy it and not get sats? Or are you going to buy it and get sats? Guy is going to get sats for everything. And lucky for you, Fold is going to give you a 20% discount for signing up with the premium card using my link at guyswan.com slash fold. And if you do nothing else, just download it for some free sats every day. Again, that's guyswan.com slash fold. Let's get back to it. Bitcoin may be humanity's historically most perfect manifestation of a pacifist revolution, but passive investing is also a revolution, only with completely opposite implications. Historical analogs are always dangerous, and each generational crossroads exhibit unique characteristics that can change the entire spectrum of outcomes. However, as a reference point, current trends reverberate with echoes of previous centralizing efforts designed to redirect our collective future and shift the public behavior, reminiscent of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, as well as Nixon's Great Society. We're even going back to German Chancellor Bismarck and his social welfare policies in the 1880s, which greatly enhanced the Second Reich's military capacity. Passive or indexed investing vehicles, such as exchange-traded funds or ETFs, are yet another example of this shift toward a mass investor class. While such a trend may seem innocuous, it is cultivating the seeds of enormous societal change. As discussed by Inigo Fraser Jenkins, a highly regarded maverick quantitative equity strategist at Wall Street firm Bernstein, passive investing can be compared to Marxism. This may sound hyperbolic, but unfortunately I believe he is onto something important here. The point being that the democratization of capital markets by way of ETF proliferation and other passive investing products inadvertently leads to socialization of capital. It would all but complete our societal transgression from liberal democracy to social democracy, a trend that has been gradually underway but accelerating over the past 75 years. Fraser Jenkins compared passive investing to other societal externalities like the tragedy of the commons, whereby behavior that may be optimal for the individual investor can be quite negative for the aggregate society when all actors behave the same way. We will return to the problem of the commons later. The unfettered expansion of passive investing does not look likely to subside anytime soon. This is especially obvious when one simply looks at the below chart or even at the hiring behavior on Capitol Hill like the large representation of BlackRock alumni acquiring key roles in the current White House administration. BlackRock is the number one manufacturer of passive investment vehicles in the world, 
with over $1.8 trillion in assets under management, followed by Vanguard in second place at $1.2 trillion. Additionally, ESG and clean energy investment mandates further this shift, creating new products to bundle into thematic passive investment securities. Such bundles make it easier for ESG-approved companies to redirect capital away from those companies that do not fit the homogenous definitions prescribed. To be clear, there is nothing intrinsically bad about incentivizing cleaner energy and more sustainable economic practices. Of course, this is a good thing. However, when rules for such behavior become formalized, complex, and sometimes arbitrary and naively general, they impinge upon the competitive dynamics of free markets that would accomplish such goals more effectively. Instead, such rules generalize the flow of investment, compensating those market participants best suited to game such a system. The new game defines the winners as those best able to adhere to the appropriate definitions as a means of acquiring low-cost capital. In a road paved with good intentions, we potentially end up in hell, robbing free markets of innovation, nuance, and differentiation. We write new rules of the game, rules that thoughtlessly increase centralization. Mike Green, a distinguished researcher of passive investment, stated back in 2020, quote, Of managed assets, passive investment is now greater than 50%, and over 40% of total market capitalization. That split, though, is not uniform across demographics. Millennials are almost 95% passive. Boomers are only 20% passive. For the vast majority of millennials, their only exposure to the market. We have a lot of hype about things like Robin Hood and stuff, but the actual assets are tiny. The vast majority of the money that they're getting is actually just going into things like Vanguard target date funds. Active equity managers have seen outflows every year, and passive investment vehicles have seen inflows every single year since 2006, and this trend is only accelerating. Bank of America's private client ETF holdings as percentage of assets under management, AUM, has continued to rise, a hard trend to fight. Chart from the BOFA Global Investment Strategy. The Passive Singularity Millennials have 95% of their retirement savings invested in passive vehicles. What is the logical conclusion of this freight train? Quote, One of the challenges that gets created as passive becomes a larger and larger share is that there becomes no discretion. There is no consideration of should the incremental dollar go in the exact same fashion, right? That passive player has no instruction to sell. You exhibit increased inelasticity in terms of each incremental dollar that goes in. Imagine a scenario in which 100% of the owners of a company were passive and you tried to buy a share. There is no price at which they would be willing to sell to you unless they received an instruction from their end investors saying to sell shares to you. Prices could theoretically become infinite on that type of dynamic. Eventually, you would expect somebody to respond by saying, all right, I will sell an additional share to you. Traditionally, that's been accomplished by price-sensitive or return-sensitive discretionary managers who say, okay, this price is unwarranted by the fundamentals, therefore I'm willing to sell some of these shares to this person who's expressing, in my view, 
and irrational demand for these shares. If that demand is so strong and it gets absolutely extreme, people can synthetically create shares by shorting. But that is incredibly dangerous to do, an environment in which stocks are exhibiting this reduced elasticity. Mike Green The mass investor class faces a big incentive problem. What does the internet, digital property, and the tragedy of the commons have in common? Our retirement accounts. The dismantled connection of choice from the capital allocation process brought about by passive investment proliferation has implications beyond the clear destruction of price signals. This is no small statement. A destruction of price signaling is as destructive as things can get for a capitalist system. Prices are the main form of communication we use in society to make appropriate economic decisions and choices. Its dissolution is of existential importance. However, there are other problems to consider from this evolution of behavior as well. Ever since the run-up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and at an accelerating pace since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, society has become more aware of the vast concentration of power that the internet giants and social media platforms carry. Pockets of government and pockets of new and growing cultural progressive movements have quite easily influenced and incentivized these platforms to actively censor speech in our democracy. This is not a political statement, and this is not a judgment about the people being censored, but merely a factual observation about a key tenet of our democratic institutions. If the U.S. Constitution can be likened to the core protocol algorithm dictating the manner in which our collective network operates, this is a clear attack on one of the most vital rules of the protocol. How can we so readily dilute our core principles? First, network effects are powerful. The ability of the internet companies to sustain and grow off individual resources with extremely low detachment rates cannot be underestimated. How did this come to be? A failure in timing. As is often the case with disruptive technology, its usage preceded an appropriate infrastructure to handle it. Unfortunately, the Byzantine general's problem was not solved before the advent of the internet. Consequently, we have been suffering the consequences that a lack of enforceable property rights leads to in a digital world. A winner-takes-all society. This is what the internet got wrong. You didn't own anything. No one had any stake on the internet. Instead, value has been extracted by those who figured out ways to own the own ramps and access points to the internet instead. This group has become the landlord class of the internet, and the vast majority of value proffered by the internet and its myriad innovations of social communication has been funneled through this layer. The consequence, of course, has been more inequality, more surveillance and control, and more concentration of power. Further, we've witnessed a trend toward a reduction of quality of information. There is a diffusion of responsibility that engulfs the internet 
when ownership is so opaque and ephemeral. We are incentivized to create more noise than signal because when no one owns the land, there is no incentive to be a steward of that land to ensure its long-term sustainability, utility, and productivity. Instead, the incentives align so as to be solely transactional. The more information one can manage, control, and recapitulate, the more one can develop network effects and externalize the social and economic cost of a system that produces excessive noise and underproduces enough structured signals that could offer synergistic benefits across societal planes. That cost is shared by all of society. It's a tragedy of the commons. All because the internet couldn't address digital property rights. The second issue here is that network effects also impact passive investing. Most passive vehicles are ETFs that are indexed and weighted by market capitalization. The bigger you are, the more capital you attract. Size matters. Aptitude and productivity do not. This takes us back to the Pareto Principle and the 80-20 rule, setting the stage for increasingly non-linear distributions of capital. And in a world where access to low-cost capital is a massive competitive advantage, we end up with an obvious outcome. The big continually get bigger, and the small only get smaller. Or worse, the upstart disruptors may never have a chance, and we would never even know what could have been. That brings us to the present, where just six behemoths have a near-majority control of the entire equity market. Most investors do not blink at this statistic any longer. Professional investors have been numbed to such lopsidedness. However, imagine if such inequality persisted within the domain of political parties, in democratic institutions, in your children's classrooms. But the real question we need to start seriously and honestly asking ourselves is this. If the below chart only becomes even more extreme in its weighting distribution, and if our collective wealth is increasingly tied to the index it represents, what will our incentives be as the companies involved become even more centralized? About 45 to 50% of our savings are tied to companies that could be actively censoring us and indirectly eroding the very principles of the system that allowed them to prosper. This share of our savings will only grow further. Will we object? I certainly hope so. But so far, there is little evidence to support that aspiration. Unfortunately, passive investing alongside a mass investor class is likely to only help internet platforms and capital markets centralize further. Major stock indices are mainly just six names now. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and NVIDIA, totaling 42% of the equity market. Block 5. All roads lead to zero. All right. There is still a massive amount of great stuff to unpack in this piece, and we are literally only about halfway through it. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I am going to have to leave very early tomorrow morning for the Oslo Freedom Forum in Miami. 
I don't think I will get to record part two until Wednesday, but it is on the way. I will have it out. Um, no time for a guy's take because it's already super late. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I have tons of notes on this piece, so I will cover some sort of guy's take maybe just at the end of part two because um, there's just a lot of amazing stuff to unpack in this one. A uh, huge thank you to Aaron Siegel and uh, Bitcoin Magazine for hosting this piece. Uh, please go check out all the charts. There is a ton of stuff to explore, and there's a lot of different statistics that I have not actually seen, particularly like the comparative ones. They kind of illustrate a lot of the different comparative inflows and outflows and the, the comparison between debts and savings and uh, investment vehicles and the, God, the inflows of uh, retail investment into the capital market. Just some, some, of these, some of these charts are really kind of eye-opening when you see these in the context of this, this story being played out by Aaron here. Um, and he's laying out a very good argument. This is, this is kind of fascinating. It, it feels very in line with the Alan Farrington's The Capital Strip Mine, or at least I, I guess like it would be block two and three of this were kind of a, a short summary with kind of some new statistics to kind of show that, uh, that problem, the idea that we've consumed so much and basically taken ourselves to the point of n no longer even looking for productivity and we are... Essentially, the, the race is to get the low-cost capital to reinvest into assets just to kind of circulate the ever-growing asset price inflation is that we've lost the capital markets, like the actual capital altogether. We're not producing any new capital at all. We're just recycling our old capital with new debt, and we've left no seed, and in doing so, we've left no seeds for the future. So we absolutely, we have no future to invest toward. We're we're just cycling our debts into ever higher ever higher asset price inflation which is just the create which is just because we're constantly creating new money and we're chasing that those quote unquote gains it's so crazy it's so crazy how just utterly destroyed it's it crazy to me what's craziest to me about this is the fact that this is invisible to so many people that we could have such insane divergences and demographic and capital shifts and how quickly we get used to it and just think this is the new normal. It's working right now, you know, so why wouldn't it just keep working forever? And the perspective of, you know, the increased acceptance of socialism and increased centralization of the economy, obvious, I mean, I totally agree. I think UBI is right around the corner. I, I think... We've, we've already seen it, right? I mean, you got your check this year, right? That's UBI. This is going to get easier every single time they come back around to it. And this turning everything into this mass investor class where everybody and their, their cousin is becoming an investor and a trader. Um, and God, that, that you'd really need to see the chart towards the beginning, the annualized rate of equity inflows that in 2021, it was a trillion dollars that, uh, I think it was 800 billion that the previous, the cumulative inflow of the previous 20 years was only 800 billion. And so far in 2021, it is a trillion dollars. That is absolutely staggering. And what we're getting is 
massive blow-off value, like valuations of these things that have absolutely nothing to do with anything. I mean, Jesus, it's like crypto and DeFi. It's all just air. And the implication that this has destroyed our price signaling. You, you know, he says in this that that is not a, that's not a small statement. That is not something to take lightly because that is exactly what's happened. The price system has failed. It does not work anymore. The very, the only tools that we have as economic actors, prices, the number one thing we have to make sense of the complex world and the reality of the economic situation around us and what decisions and choices we have, we have available to us to make and their relative values to each other, what they mean in the grand scheme, that system has been so gamed and manipulated where it is absolutely useless for us in making economic decisions. It is a matter of time before the whole thing blows up. And I said I wasn't going to do a guy's take, but, uh, <laughs> okay, we're done here. We're done. I got to go. I got to head out. I got to get a little bit of sleep before my flight. A huge thank you to swanbitcoin.com for the Bitcoin savings plan so that I can stack automatically all the time and withdraw to my keys safely and soundly. And I know that I am protected through all of this insanity. And where are my keys? They're on my BitBox. I got a BitBox hardware wallet, our other sponsor. A secure, simple to use cold storage device. That's how you keep your Bitcoin safe. And uh, lastly, I just got sats back on buying my flight yesterday because A, I procrastinate and B, because I use the Fold card. I literally get sats back on everything with the Spin Plus card from Fold. Check all of them out at guyswan.com. All right, guys, that'll close us out. Thank you so much for listening. We will have part two. We will finish this out. And I've got enough notes here that I'm, I'm going to have to do some sort of an extended guy's take on this. Um, and so many more great pieces to come. I got a couple of long ones that I'm actually working in the background. So stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, everybody, take it easy. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>